Well, hi everyone, uh, do you remember the Pixar movie Inside Out? It's a pretty insightful movie about how emotions control so much of what we do and if we could understand them and get in touch with them, it would help us to understand you know, why we fly off the handle with our kids or why we're insecure around big crowds or why we drink too much or why we try so hard to impress our friends or why we pretend that we're someone we're not. Our, our emotions play a huge role in determining who we are. I think historically the church hasn't quite known what to do with emotions. Like at times emotions are, are demonized when we say, you know, I don't, wanna, I don't want that worship music to be all emotional or just give me the truth. You know, or don't, don't tell me what you feel, tell me what you believe. And then at other times Christians have, have trusted their emotions too much and adopted the mindset, you know, if it feels good to me right now, uh, you know, God must want me to do it that way or whatever. So uh, many Christians have fallen into one of these two healthy extremes as it relates to our emotions, either worshiping our emotions or suppressing their emotions. Well, the Bible takes a very holistic approach when it comes to our faith. Every part of you needs to be engaged with God. We've, we've accepted this splintered view of what it means to be a human. I can have uh, an intellectual identity over here and a relational identity over there and an emotional identity and a sexual identity and a political identity, a spiritual identity, and they can all operate independently of each other. But think about Jesus' words from Mark 12, 30 when he said, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, physically, feelings, relationships, thoughts, actions. And so my questions today around emotions is, are you loving God with your emotions? See, the biblical answer doesn't fall in either extreme. The Bible doesn't command us to stuff our emotions or to deny them. No, the Bible, and particularly the Psalms that we're gonna look at today, provide a unique third way to think about our feelings. The, the Psalms are, are neither stoic, detached discussions of feelings, nor are they mere venting of feelings. When you read the Psalms, if you're not familiar with them, you, you'll be shocked by their rawness, the, the anger, the fear, the hostility, the white heat of emotions expressed in the Psalms. They can really disturb people. You'll say, you know, well, what's that doing in the Bible? Well, here's the answer. Here's why it's so raw. You see, the psalmists are not discussing feelings. They're not expressing feelings. They're praying their feelings. They're processing their feelings in the presence of God. And so that's what we're gonna learn about this month in this series called Raw Prayers. How do we take these emotions that are very human, very normal, and how do we process them with a loving, ever-present God? And so this month, we're gonna look at specifically how to process pain, guilt, doubt, and today we're gonna to start with the most common of all emotions, fear. And as I do at the very beginning of every series, whether you're new or whether you've been around for a long time, I'm gonna ask you to do one very specific thing, and that is to commit to this series, to make it a priority to be in church this month. You've already got the first week under your belt, so, so just say to yourself, three more times, three more hours during the month of May, I'm gonna prioritize my soul. I'm gonna put God and his word first. Before I schedule anything else in my calendar, I'm putting church in there, May 14th, 21st, 28th. I'm just convinced you won't regret it. So here's my very straightforward big idea for today. Bringing your fears to God will help you sleep better at night. Our passage actually says this. Now, before we get into our text for today in Psalm chapter three, you can turn there in your Bible or device, Psalm three, but I have a couple of introductory matters that I wanna cover. So first I want us to consider the Psalms. You know, Psalms is one of the most beloved books in the Bible. And interestingly, this collection was the very first prayer book of the church. 
Uh, our most ancient Christian brothers and sisters practiced prayer primarily as the daily memorization and recitation of the Psalms. And so the Psalms provide this prayer model for believers because you see, the Psalms take us deep into our own hearts, faster than maybe we would ever go on our own because they already provide some language uh, about the human experience. They give us language to walk through deep suffering and pain before we maybe even arrive there ourselves. They give us language for praise and thanksgiving, maybe when we don't feel those things at all. Kind of like the resistance that our muscles get with the, the push and pull of lifting weights, the Psalms pull and push us emotionally and spiritually beyond our normal capacities. In fact, Tish Harrison uh, Warren said this, she said, praying the Psalms doesn't simply teach us to express our emotions to God. The practice also shapes our emotions. And so the Psalms act to both reveal God to us, and then they provide a model for our conversation with him. They provide the perfect soil for Christians to learn the art of prayer. And so the earliest Christians in the first church made extensive use of the Psalms, both privately and corporately, when they were gathered for services like we are right now. So, so we, we get to hear the, the voice of God in each individual psalm through the many moods and languages, the various themes of each passage. And just like the rest of scriptures, the, the psalms are, as Paul says, useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so this month, we're gonna use the psalms to help instruct us about how to pray our emotions. Now, one more introductory matter. I want you to look at fear for a second. Do you know what is the most common command in scripture, the most frequent instruction God gives the human race in his word? Surprisingly, it's not, you know, be more loving, although of course that's right at the core of God's will for us. It's not fight your pride, it's not cultivate humility, it's not about sexual integrity or walking in truth, although these are all very important things. It's not about being more holy or sinning less. The most common command given in all of the scripture is three words, do not fear. This command is repeated 365 times. I like to think that it's our reminder from God for every day of the year. Jesus asked his disciples and the crowds who followed him over 40 times through the gospels, why are you so afraid? It's as if God knows that one of the main things that stands between us and following him or obeying him fully is the fact that we can easily fall victim to our own fear. It's often our first instinct when life is uncertain, when something is unfamiliar, when society seems unstable, when we move into a new phase of life, when our kids face new challenges. Fear is universal. All of us have fears. For a long time, the, the fear of death uh, was one of the top fears, but it was number two on the fear list among people. Do you know what number one was? Speaking in public, <laughs> which means if you go to a funeral, that the majority of the people would prefer to be laying in the casket rather than giving the eulogy, which I always found somewhat funny. Anyway, fear is very common, but it's also complex. So, so back in the 1960s, psychologist Rollo May did some groundbreaking work. I agree with some of it, some of it I don't, but he wrote a book called The Meaning of Anxiety. He pioneered research in this area of anxiety, which is so common for us today. But he, he talked about how different it is than fear. So fear is an instinctive response to a clear and present danger. It activates all of your adrenal glands. Like you're walking down a sidewalk and a car veers toward you, your body is flooded with adrenaline and you jump out of the way. This is a positive fear because it saves your life. 
That feeling of fear, though, is temporary, and your body was made to deal with it temporarily. So, so there are a couple of different parts to the human brain, for example. There's the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for complex emotions like forgiveness and active listening and kindness and empathy and gratefulness and gentleness. Then there's the thing called the amygdala. This is this little bean-shaped part of your brain which is responsible for reactive emotions like disgust and excitement and anger and yes, fear. And so fear lights up the amygdala within the part of the brain. When that amygdala lights up from fear, our bodies receive this kind of robust chemical release. And so fear gives us a dose of drugs essentially, a feel-good chemical. And so as counterintuitive as it sounds, fear actually feels good. It's, it's stimulating, even addictive at times, which is why we click on links to, to news stories with the most fear-based headlines we can find. It's why it's instinctive to, to, to fear the other groups who are not like me. And historically, we've learned that our response to fear is either fight or flight. These responses are as old as mankind. They are part of our survival mechanism. But there's a third response in addition to fight and flight, it's to freeze. And that response is often connected to anxiety, which is different than fear. Fear is obvious and, and immediate, but anxiety is vague, as Rollo said. It's a feeling of dread and weakness, which goes on and on. Anxiety is about the wear and tear of a thousand little deaths and disappointments and failures and hardships. And, and it's really a, a hard to pinpoint at times a cause of anxiety. It's amorphous. It's generalized. And the thing about anxiety is that it begins to call into question your very identity, who you think you are, where you've staked your being. It starts to be eaten away at by constant dread. And so we see both fear and anxiety present in Psalm 3 today, where we're going to learn that when you find yourself consumed by fear, you don't have to resort to fight, flight, or freeze. Start with prayer. So we're going to look at Psalm 3 today. It says this. I want to just read it to you. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Now, let me break down this psalm just for a moment before we kind of workshop it out and use it as a model for praying our fears to God. So, so let's start by breaking down the psalm. There are some firsts in Psalm chapter 3 among all the psalms. So it's the first psalm to have a heading. The heading here, you remember, it says, uh, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. We'll come back to that in a moment. Speaking of that, it's also the, the first psalm to be attributed to David. Now, contrary to popular belief, David is not the only author of the Psalms. In fact, of the 150 Psalms, David is named as the author of about 75 of them. Now, he may have written more, but we're not exactly sure. We, we know that when he was young, David was a shepherd, a talented musician and songwriter, but obviously he wrote some of these Psalms through his lifetime, even after becoming the king of Israel. 
This is also the first psalm to include the historical setting in which it was written. So the fact that this was written later in David's life, but it's placed so early in the order of the psalm, Psalm 3, shows us that they're not necessarily organized in chronological order. They're organized more by themes. In fact, they were likely grouped together and organized during the time of Ezra uh, in the 4th century B.C. So today is one of 13 psalms that, that kind of help us out by sharing the historical setting that they represent. So again, we'll talk about more uh, the, the Absalom situation in, a, in just a moment. But this is also the first occurrence of this word selah. It's a word that you'll find repeated throughout the psalms, and it represents a pause or the end of a section or potentially even an instrumental interlude, uh, since many of these were written as songs uh, that would be sung corporately. Finally, among the first, this is the first psalm of lament. And lament just means to express deep sorrow or grief or regret. So the psalms of lament are beautiful poems or hymns expressing deep human struggles. And so the psalms of lament comprise really the largest category of psalms, making up about a third of the entire book. These are are prayers that lay out a troubling situation to the Lord, or they make a request for his help. Now, the the movement among contemporary American churches like ours is to be, try try to be positive as often as possible, happy and clappy, you know, keep it upbeat. And that's a little bit hard to square with the fact that one-third of the main prayer and worship book of the church is centered around lament. These laments are real and they're raw. And I want you just to consider this quote from Walt Brueggemann. He says, most of the Psalms can only be appropriately prayed by people who are living at the edge of their lives, sensitive to the raw hurts, the primitive passions and the naive elations that are at the bottom of our life. For most of us, liturgical or devotional entry into the Psalms requires a real change of pace. It asks us to depart from the closely managed world of public survival to move into the open, frightening, healing world of speech with the Holy One. So, in this psalm, we see King David approaching God with a very real and personal fear. You can find the backstory to this situation over in 2 Samuel 15 to 18, if you'd like to read it on your own. But, But in those chapters, you will see how David's son, Absalom, organizes a coup to overthrow his father's kingship and to seek revenge for David's many failures. And so David's kingdom is being wrenched from his grasp by his own son. And Absalom's rebellion uh, represented the hearts of the whole nation of Israel. And so David the king, anointed by the Lord, was being forced now to flee Jerusalem and to wait out the crisis in an encampment across the Jordan River. And so this psalm reflects kind of a national situation of Israel as well as the personal feelings of David. This was a terrifying moment for him. And even though David was to blame for much of the chaos here, his fear was no less real. I mean, David wasn't exactly a great father. He focused on his career and his personal interests more than his children many times. He provided financially for them, but not emotionally for his family. And he participated in some generational sins, which some of us are well aware of, not the least of which was his affair with Bathsheba and murder of her husband that was a cloud that hung over his whole family for generations. And so he he was not an innocent bystander in the calamity that was coming upon him. But, and and I, I think this is encouraging to us in a strange way, because this sacred passage reminds us that even if we are fully or partially responsible for creating our own mess, the the, the fearful circumstances that we're in, we can still seek God's help. 
And so here in Psalm 3, we can chart how David pours his fears out to a holy God and asks for help. And so I want to spend the rest of our time getting really practical as we look at how to pray your fears to God. I want us to use this psalm as a model. And I want to give a shout out here to both Tim Mackey and Tim Keller for messages called Praying Our Fears uh, for some of the content today. Okay, here's the first step to praying our fears to God is to name your fears. I want you to look again at verses one and two. It says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Look for repeated words and, and, and what's he freaking out about? Well, the word that's repeated here is many. How many? In fact, there are 12,000 soldiers at his heels. Now, remember Absalom had himself, uh, had declared himself king. And David had to run into the wilderness to flee for his life. And there's an army after him to literally imprison and kill him. And so in verse 1, he says, many are my foes. Many are against me. And he's right, unfortunately for him. We see that David identifies two sources of his fear. And I think this is important. The first source is obviously, in verse 1, physical attacks. This is, he's afraid for his safety. And, and this is real for some People today, maybe even some of you watching, I mean, I think about the incredible number of school and workplace shootings that have happened just this year. I think about our black and brown brothers and sisters who face racially motivated violence. I think about kids who experience bullying in school. Heck, recent news stories about young people pulling into the wrong driveway, for heaven's sakes, or going to the wrong door and getting shot. There are sadly lots of examples of people fearing physical attacks, but the second fear is deeper, I think, and darker and even more damaging. It's much more connected with what we said about anxiety earlier because it's threatening David's very identity. David says in verse 2, Many are saying there is no salvation for him in God. This is the second level of David's fear. It's spiritual accusations. And that, that verse may not seem like much to you until you, you read it in the context of his kingship. That, that, that's what they're saying about the king. And here's what this means. That they're not just attacking his body physically. They're attacking his identity. They're attacking his calling. They're attacking his character. And so if you go back into 2 Samuel 15 to 18, you'll see it. They were, they were actually comparing him to his predecessor, which was not a compliment. If you remember King Saul, it was David's predecessor. Remember how King Saul sinned uh, before uh, God. He, he sinned and he did wrong and God abandoned him and God took the kingship from him and God fled from him and withdrew from him. And people are saying, that must be what's happening to David. They're saying, look at the terrible things that David has done. He had this, Beth, uh, this affair with Bathsheba and then he murdered her husband Uriah. How can a man like that be our king? He's forfeited his right to be our king. That's what's going on in verse 2. David's very identity, his very sense of who, he, who God called him to be is being assaulted. So this anxiety has set in. And when you're always agitated, when you're always nervous, when you're always kind of restless, always a bit scared, your, your, your autonomic nervous system is always on. It's important to kind of get to the bottom of that, to identify it, to bring it to God in prayer. See, your fear is not always just about a threat to your physical being. It's sometimes about a threat to your sense of self. Anxiety comes in when something that you've, you've put your real security in, something that made you feel in control, something that made you feel like you had an identity, when that thing is being eaten away at. 
That's the reason why the fear has spiritual roots. Because the only way to deal with it is spiritually. And so that's why this first step is naming your fears. It's so important. Bring your fears directly to God. If they're not clear, ask God to grant you wisdom in helping you to identify your fears. But the clarity is critical. Now look at the second step. It's to refocus on God. And so verses 1 and 2, David expresses the source of his fear. But look at verse 3. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So, so we see these beautiful expressions. Notice, first of all, he says, God is a shield. And notice the kind of shield. He says that God is a, a shield about me or around me. There were a couple kinds of different shields in the ancient world. There was a, a little shield, you've seen it in the movies, where you'd, you'd wear on your arm for hand-to-hand combat. You'd have a, a sword in the other hand and a shield in this one. You'd strike and defend and strike and defend. That, that's not the shield about you. See, there was another kind of shield. It was a, a full-length shield the size of a door. Literally nothing could penetrate it. It wrapped around you. This kind of shield was not for hand-to-hand combat. You would only use it when you're following your general to go besiege a fortress. You only use that shield when you're going into horrible danger. It's not one that gets you away from danger. This is a shield that goes into danger. You only use this shield when you're going on purpose, following your general into a place where they're going to pour hot lava down on you or throw boulders down on you or spears and arrows and catapults. See, often when bad things happen to you and you're experiencing fear, you'll you'll come to God in prayer and you'll say things like, why did you abandon me? Or where are you? Or how could you let this happen to me? Why, Why do we say those things to God in prayer? Well, you have to let the questions lead you back to what your assumptions are. And for many people, your assumption is that God's role in your life is to keep bad things from happening to you. And I would say, you could go ahead and believe that. Just don't associate any of that with the God of the Bible because he never says that that's his role. That's not the promise of our God. In fact, his promise is that when bad things happen to you in the middle of this broken world, his presence will be close at hand. And what David is admitting in Psalm 3 and what we too must admit and even expect and anticipate is that it's often in our tragedy that we sense God's closeness the most. It's in our darkest moments we have our most intimate encounters with him and maybe even recognize that he has led us to this moment so that we can experience his glory firsthand. And so when David says, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared, but but I remember that you are a shield around me, he's not saying, "I, I know you won't let bad things happen to me. No, he says, I'm scared, but I know you often take me into danger. It's just like you to lead me into uncomfortable situations. And God, I recognize that your shielding and your protection, it only works when I'm going forward, when I'm obeying you, when I'm actually following you. You are not going to shield me from pain and from arrows and from danger. You're going to shield me in the midst of all of those things. So what's he doing when he's saying this in this moment? I'm going to stop focusing on the arrows I'm going to start focusing on the shield. I'm going to stop focusing on the sources of my fear. And I'm going to start focusing on the sources of my provision. So what's David doing in his fear as he prays? Well, he's refocusing on God and on his character 
and on his provision. You're a shield about me. Now look what he says next. There's this other two-word descriptor that is critically important. We can't rush by it. He says, you are my glory. Now, we learned a few weeks ago that this word glory in the Bible often means weight or weighty. It's the heaviness of significance. The Hebrew word also has this sense of a most honored status. In fact, this word can sometimes be used of important people. In, 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 in final, the final eulogy, actually, of David's life at the end of First Chronicles, it says that David died at a good old age, having enjoyed a long life, wealth, and here's this word, glory. So David had glory. What was his glory? What was his status, his significance, his importance? But in this moment of his life, Psalm 3, he doesn't seem to have any of that status from anywhere. In fact, any illusion that he was a successful father, well, that's been shattered. He's on the run from his son, who's already, by the way, killed his other son for raping their sister. I mean, status of good father, gonzo. He was a successful nation builder. Well, not anymore. The nation's divided and heading for disaster. He's a powerful king. Clearly not anymore. At least he has his moral integrity. Man after God's own heart. Remember that? Well, after the whole Bathsheba thing, not anymore. So why are these two words so important? David's saying, God, you are my glory. He's saying that you are the one who gives me significance. You are the one who gives me identity and meaning. And clearly, right here, he is confessing this because something else has become his glory. Maybe his wealth, maybe his power, maybe his status, maybe his significance. It's easy to get caught up in that stuff, isn't it? And certainly it's a good thing to be talented at stuff. And it's a good thing to have a spouse who loves you and to have children that you're taking care of. And it's a good thing to have a successful career. These things are good, but... If you locate your glory in them, what you've done is that you've, you've put your glory, your worth, your security in something finite. And the answer for David wasn't to dig in his heels and to grab all those things back. It was to admit that he was never his own significance in the first place. God, he says, you are my glory. And then he goes to the next step and he calls God the lifter of my head. I, I love this phrase in this picture. Our oldest son, some of you have heard me talk before, Caleb had tons of allergies as a kid, some of them very life-threatening, and so we made many a trip to the emergency room in those early days of his life. And I remember one such trip, Caleb had started swelling up at a family gathering, and his airways would start to restrict, and so we'd have to get him to the hospital. And as we waited, and his breathing was labored, and he, he was so frustrated and sad and angry, he put his head down to his chest, and he was scared and anxious and tired of this whole thing. His body language was not good. And I remember standing right in front of him and he wouldn't look up at me. He was so anxious. And I, I wanted to reassure him, but I, I wanted him to see it in my face. And so I said, Caleb, look at me. He didn't. Son, look at me. His head still hung low. He was all in his fear and frustrations. And gently, I remember just putting my hand underneath his chin and lifted up his head. And when his eyes met mine, I said, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. See, there's a posture of head hung low that, that gets us caught up in our problems and our fears and our anxieties. And I love this expression from David. God is the lifter of our head. He, he helps to turn our attention from ourselves to him and the confidence that comes from knowing who he is. It's gonna be okay. And so as we pray in our fear, 
It's an important moment when after you've, you've made your complaints and you've identified the sources of your fear, you begin to remind yourself of the character and the qualities of God. And notice that when you do that, David says, God now answered me from his holy hill. Here's the third step in praying your fears. It's to find rest. And I, I love this part. So, so can we just talk about sleep as an expression of faith? I think that's what David is showing us here is that he has learned to console himself with God. Look what he says. He says, I lay down and slept and I woke up again for the Lord sustained me. Our big idea was fashioned around this verse. Bringing your fears to God will help you to sleep better at night. See, once David identifies the source of his fears and then he recenters his mind and his heart on God's character and attributes, there's almost a twinge of defiance in this statement. One translation says, as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to sleep. He's able to rest in the grace and the mercy of God. He's not going to engineer his future. He's not going to base his contentment on how well his own plans are turning out. It's in Yahweh's hands, and so he sleeps as an as a expression of faith. And, and then look what he can say here in verse 6. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And we read, we read that and we think, really? That quickly? In your prayer? And one good night's sleep, you go from being afraid of the thousands who are going to hurt you to not being afraid anymore. Remember the fact that there were many after him. And that, that, that this was the very source of his fear earlier. But he arrives at that place where Paul seemed to arrive later in the New Testament. When in the midst of incredible difficulty, precisely because he was following God and following Jesus, he's, he was able to see that Suffering was yet just another way to make him dependent upon the grace and the mercy of Jesus. David knew that Yahweh's commitment to him was stronger than death, and so he was able to live in a state of perpetual peace. So, friends, don't underestimate the power of a good night's sleep in the center of God's love. So, we've said, how do you pray your fears to God? Name your fears. Refocus on God. Find rest. And here's the last one. Express your emotions. So starting in verse 7, the psalm begins to move with a quickening rhythm. David's envisioning God now as an intervening like a champion warrior in the battle fray, striking out and, and right and left with his battle club. And he's saying, save me, God. And then he gives God some of his own suggestions. He says, strike all my enemies on the cheek. Break the teeth of the wicked. So, so what, what we have to know is that a strike near the jaw was a means of public disgrace and humiliation. So David doesn't want just physical retribution. He wants reputational paybacks as well. And we're tempted to read stuff like this and be like, now, now, David, you know, we, we, we mustn't speak like that to God. Well, what do you want him to do? Like, we're, we're back to where we began at the beginning of the message. Well, what should he do with these emotions? Should he stuff them? Pretend they're not there? Should he take matters into his own hands? No. Here's the point of our whole series and a very instructive component of praying the Psalms. He takes those emotions and he prays them. In an act of great faith, he commits his enemies to God's justice. See, see there are things in this world that are worth being furious about. Bring them to God. Express them to God. He's a big boy. He can handle all of your emotions. He can take your anger. He can take your fear. Don't stuff it. Don't take it into your own hands. Pray your way through it. And so David lands at verse 8 where he admits. He says, if deliverance is going to come from anywhere, 
It's not going to come from me. He says with great faith, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. I can hear Paul Harvey in my mind. And now for the rest of the story. See, interestingly, Absalom is eventually taken down and David never has to lift a finger. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Absalom was very vain. He was particularly proud of his long hair. In fact, he had a statue made of himself showing his long flowing hair. And in the midst of the wilderness, ironically, it's his hair that gets caught in a tree and somebody throws a spear right through his chest. So we have this amazing and profound prayer. And I really want us to learn from it. I really want us to use it as a model. And so as we move into a time of response and and singing and, and yes, praying, I want to ask, what would it look like for you to go on a similar journey that David went on here? Is there a fear that you're walking through right now? Maybe related to a situation, maybe it's related to a person, but you and God together should probably identify that. And then turn your attention to God's character. Find some rest and then express your emotions to God. Now, we're going to put the components of that model prayer up on the screen. We're going to provide you some time to just work through it, navigate through it. Pray your fears to God on your own as we wrap this up today. But listen, if you're in one of our physical locations, I want to just invite you to come forward for prayer. Come up to the front of the room. There's nothing magical about coming forward, but but it sure is a blessing to have somebody put a hand on your shoulder and just contend for you, to like spiritually contend for you. I just think it'll be such a great encouragement. So go ahead and do it. We're going to take a few minutes now, and as you pray, as the music plays, if you're in one of our rooms and if you're so compelled, come on up so that we can pray with you. Otherwise, just take a few moments at your seat and pray through this prayer. I love you guys.